Hello and welcome to Killing Time, a podcast about conflicts and battles that have bent the arc of history. I'm your host, Chip Wagar. Thanks for joining me for this military history podcast series. The battle we covered in our last podcast, the Battle of Trafalgar, was the first naval battle in our podcast series. The battle we're going to discuss today, the Battle of Yorktown, is in truth a naval battle as much as a land battle. Most accounts tend to concentrate on the siege of the British Army under General Lord Cornwallis by the Franco-American forces under George Washington and General Rochambeau, and mention the naval battle that was so decisive in the outcome of the siege and the war and the course of history, the Battle of the Capes, almost not at all. That naval battle was fought over several days in early September 1781, between a French fleet under Admiral François Comte de Grasse and a British fleet under Admiral Thomas Graves. We will not downplay, let alone neglect, this aspect of the final and decisive battle of the American Revolutionary War. And in fact, given the very nice response to Trafalgar, I will give it at least equal billing because it provides a fascinating aspect of the story of the Battle of Yorktown in and of itself. Speaking of our past podcasts, Killing Time, I want to thank you, the listener, for the remarkable response we've had since the start of our series. According to data and statistics made available to me, Killing Time has now reached 20,000 downloads, and as listeners around the world. Although Trafalgar was the newest episode in the series, it has already become the most popular podcast with over a 1,000 downloads since it came out. We average some 100 downloads a day now for all episodes. If you're interested, after Trafalgar, the most popular episodes have been the Battle of Moscow, 1941, Tannenberg, 1914, and Gettysburg, 1863. I took a bit of a hiatus over the Christmas and New Year's holidays and thought that interest in the series might have dropped off given the time that has passed since Trafalgar hit the internet in mid-November. But that wasn't the case with new listeners, perhaps like you, turning into our Military History podcast series. So thank you, everybody, for the interest and encouragement. And with that, let's get into our next episode, Yorktown and the Battle of the Capes. As always, we begin by putting the battle and the state of military weapons, logistics, strategy, and tactics in context. The year was 1781. The American Revolutionary War had been going on by then 
for six or seven years, depending on when you count it. Most historians count it from the date of the military engagements of Lexington and Concord on April 19, 1775. And so will I. But you could also date the war from the actual Declaration of Independence of the 13 Colonies from Britain on July 4, 1776. Either way, this war had flickered and flared on and off for five or six often miserable years, with the fortunes of war at times favoring the rebels and at other times the loyalists. Many people, even Americans, don't appreciate the fact that the war was not just between the colonists and the crown, but was actually an ongoing civil war between the colonists themselves, many of whom remained loyal to Britain until the end of the war. Terrible local conflicts played out in the background of the military campaign, with massacres, atrocities, burnings, lootings, and all that goes with brutal civil wars. Add to that the brooding, looming presence of Native Americans, the Iroquois, for example, whose loyalties had been with the British during the earlier French and Indian War of the 1750s, and remained largely with the British in this war as well. And you can see, it was a very difficult and violent time during the American Revolutionary War. But the war played out on a world stage as well, and one that is not always given equal time either. In our series, we've mentioned earlier the century-long struggle between France and Britain for mastery of the world that ended at Waterloo in 1815. The American Revolutionary War was to France and Britain another chapter in that struggle and would mark the low point of Britain's fortunes, as we'll see. From a European point of view, the American War was another proxy war in this franco English struggle, this time an opportunity for France to give their British rivals a comeuppance after France's defeats and what we call the French and Indian War, but on the continent of Europe was the Seven Years' War of 1756 to 1763. In that war, France had gotten the worst of it and had lost its colonial empire in Canada and some additional holdings in the West Indies, as the Caribbean was known at that time. Despite its poor showing in the last war with Britain, France remained the preeminent land power in Europe, and with its far larger population and armies, impregnable to British conquest on the continent, while Britain, with its larger investment in its navy, and its geographic position as an island power, was largely impregnable to France at sea. Yet the French navy was also a formidable force in the late 18th century, second only to Britain's, and always with the potential to grow and possibly match that of Britain, or to gain a temporary but decisive superiority in some theater of war. And we must also remember that this war was nearly a quarter century before the Napoleonic Wars and Trafalgar. 
It was at a time before the conquest and establishment of the British Empire of the 19th century that would find British colonies on every continent and its domination and occupation of India. Britain in the 18th century had a much smaller empire, especially compared to that of, say, Spain. Britain's main holdings were in North America alone, Canada, the 13 colonies and islands in the Caribbean, including Jamaica, its most valuable colony. In fact, the income from Jamaica and its sugar plantations in the 1770s exceeded all of the American colonies and made up 20% of Britain's trade. So against this backdrop, the possibility of a new rival to Britain's vastly expanded power in North America posed an irresistible temptation to France as events unfolded in Boston and then in Philadelphia in 1775 and 1776. Now, This was a day and age in which news from the Americas reached Europe no sooner than six weeks, and in the reverse direction from Europe to the Americas, without the age of the Gulf Stream, in the age of sail, up to three months. So things moved slowly, but when news reached Paris in early 1778 about the disastrous British defeat and surrender at Saratoga, In October 1777, the temptation was just too much. The American ambassador in Paris, Benjamin Franklin, negotiated a treaty of alliance that was signed on February 6, 1778. By the way, this treaty between France and the United States is the one that makes France the first and oldest ally of the United States of America in its entire history. France is the only European great power with whom the United States has never fought a war. France and the United States would again become allies not long after in the War of 1812 and again in the First World War in 1917 and again in the Second World War in 1941. The United States and France have remained in a state of continuous alliance in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, since 1949 to this day. But this treaty in 1778 was the beginning of it all. By the summer of 1778, France had already sent to America a large fleet of 12 full-fledged warships, or ships of the line, as they were called then, and 14 frigates, together with some infantry detachments that landed at Newport, Rhode Island. This fleet and the small French military force did little more than establish a French base in Rhode Island. A far more formidable force was sent two years later, the Expedition Particulaire, under the Count of Rochambeau, and some 6,000 crack French infantry. Also ensconced at Newport was a new French admiral, Jacques Saint-Laurent, the Comte de Brasse, with eight ships of the line and four frigates, both of whom would play major roles at Yorktown. Now, 6,000 troops may not sound like much compared to the millions of soldiers that took place in 20th century wars, or even compared to the 
hundred-thousand-man field armies of the Napoleonic Wars that were just around the corner, but in reality, for the time and the place, it was. Combined with George Washington's Continental Army of about 8,000, the Franco-American combined force of around 14,000 regulars was a very large force indeed for the North American continent, second only to the British force in New York under General Sir Henry Clinton, the supreme commander of British forces in America, that numbered around 27,000. The British situation in America in 1781 was delicate. On the one hand, Britain held most of the major American cities that were located on the seacoast, including New York uh, and Charleston, South Carolina. The Royal Navy's presence in New York with some 19 ships of the line, augmenting its large army, made New York the largest and most formidable base on the continent. The Royal Navy could transport British detachments to virtually any point up and down the coast and capable of bringing almost overwhelming force and local superiority virtually anywhere, anytime. And we should mention at this time that the American colonies were largely populated on the coastline. Uh, as you went into the interior, there was very little um, in the way of population except for you know tiny villages and farms uh, that eventually melted away into forest and mountains. In any event, the war was largely a stalemate by 1781, with the Americans holding the rural and heavily forested interior areas, capable of roaming about and striking isolated British or loyalist areas out of the blue. As the years wore on, British power and authority in the colonies waned, and by 1781 extended little further than what was held by military force, mainly around New York and Charleston. And in Virginia, the Americans under the Marquis de Lafayette a volunteer from France, a volunteer French aristocrat, which numbered around 3,000 troops, had become a particularly troublesome force, attacking smaller British forces and outposts. Clinton decided to reinforce British forces that were already there under Benedict Arnold, who had defected to the British side earlier in the war. Clinton ordered his second-in-command, Charles Cornwallis, to move north into Virginia from the Carolinas and reinforce Arnold with additional detachments from New York, bringing total British strength in Virginia up to around 7,200 men. In May, Cornwallis arrived, took command of British forces, and began pursuing Lafayette, who withdrew into the uh, hinterland in the face of superior forces. 
that is to say, into the interior of Virginia. But there, Lafayette linked up with smaller detachments under Baron von Steuben and General Anthony Wayne, bringing his numbers up to about 4,500, still significantly inferior to Cornwallis's uh, forces uh, in the eastern part of Virginia. Eventually, Cornwallis gave up the pursuit of Lafayette and returned to the coastline around Portsmouth, where he then received orders from Clinton to establish a base at Yorktown. This included building fortifications and a port facility that would serve Hampton Roads. Uh, Even though the word Roads is used along with Hampton, what we're really talking about is uh, an area at the southern end of the Chesapeake Bay that is one of the world's largest deep-water natural harbors. This base would enable the British to leverage their ability to land or withdraw military forces by sea using the Royal Navy. Lafayette, as the Americans so often did, remained just out of reach, but hovering nearby, keeping the British under observation. One of the most interesting and indeed amazing things about this campaign involves the delays in communications and maneuvering that prevailed at this time. Given the rather poor roads and the distances involved, there were often great delays in sending and receiving orders and requests among and between the commanders of both sides. Days, weeks, even months elapsed between the last communication between commanders, and often between the time when word was sent by one and received by another, the situation had changed. The information contained in the communications was outdated and possibly inaccurate. Both sides knew this and had to make allowances for this fact. For example, one allowance that had to be made was to give great autonomy to the local commander to follow or disregard orders because circumstances had changed or may have changed during these long intervals. Clinton's orders to Cornwallis, for example, were often and necessarily vague and general, with great discretion given to execute them, quote, if practicable or, quote, if circumstances should permit, unquote. The best example of this perplexing and often frustrating fact of life was the communications between Washington and Rochambeau, who met on May 21st for the first time, and the French Admiral de Grasse, whose fleet and additional French military forces were known to be in the West Indies. After discussing the pros and cons of where to attack that year, New York or Virginia, Washington decided, with Rochambeau's encouragement, to request de Grasse to join them, if possible, in an attack either on Clinton's base in New York or Cornwallis's force operating in Virginia. Rochambeau privately favored an attack against the smaller force in Virginia, and in a private and secret note to de Grasse, encouraged the Admiral to elect joint operations in Virginia. A ship was dispatched from Newport to make the inquiry, knowing little more than that de Grasse was expected at some point to arrive in Haiti. François-Joseph-Paul, Marquis de Grasse-Tilly and Comte de Grasse, has to be ranked 
as one of the most aggressive and successful French admirals ever. A maritime nation that eventually acquired vast overseas possessions, and for the most of its history was in possession of rather large, if not robust, navies, nonetheless French admirals have not generally distinguished themselves like their land counterparts. De Grasse was an exception. De Grasse was born into an old noble family near Marseille, near the town of Grasse, where if you go there today, you'll see um, the school that he went to. Um, Grasse is near the Mediterranean coast, uh, and he was born in 1722. At 11 years old, he entered the Naval Academy at Toulon, but left in 1734 to join the Knights of Malta. At the outbreak of the War of the Austrian Succession in 1740, he transferred to the French Navy and for 25 years served the king in India and the Mediterranean. More importantly, he spent much of his time in the Caribbean, where he commanded uh, a frigate uh, in Haiti in 1775 and 1776. He left for Europe after that, but returned to American waters in 1779 when he commanded a squadron under the Comte d'Estaing, another pretty good French admiral, at Grenada in July, and was commanding officer of the French fleet in the Caribbean after d'Estaing left for Europe following the unsuccessful siege of Savannah, Georgia. In 1780, and in ill health himself, de Grasse returned to France again, but shortly thereafter received another assignment from the French crown to attack and conquer British possessions in the Caribbean. De Grasse uh, left France in March 1781 with a fleet of about 28 warships and some 6,000 troops with the invasion of the British West Indian possessions on his mind. He arrived in Martinique in late April to find a British fleet under Sir Samuel Hood blockading the island. And we're going to see more of Admiral Hood uh, as our story goes along. He pounced on Hood's much smaller fleet, which quickly withdrew, but linked up a couple of weeks later with another British admiral, George Rodney. The combined British fleets there were now even larger than de Grasse's fleet, and Rodney was one of Britain's most renowned and dangerous naval commanders of that era. Rodney's conduct of the war in the Caribbean, however, was less than spectacular over the next several months. De Grasse aggressively attacked first St. Lucia as a ruse, but then Tobago, while Rodney's fleet made for Barbados, completely out of the area of operations in May and June, when Tobago fell to the French. In June, Rodney's fleet actually came into contact with De Grasse, whose force slightly outnumbered his own. Rodney chose to break contact and was subjected to a storm of criticism in London after that. De Grasse then returned first to Tobago and then Martinique and finally to Haiti, where he received Washington's request for help, as we have heard. Now, months had passed as the ship that carried Washington's request for aid to De Grasse made its way down to the West Indies, arrived, and then just waited for De Grasse, while Washington and Rochambeau waited outside New York. When De Grasse did arrive in Haiti, 
One can only imagine his reaction as he read Washington's request sent a couple of months earlier. To his credit, on receipt of Washington's request, and Rochambeau's private letter, de Grasse immediately sent a response, again by sea, of course, that he would depart immediately for the Chesapeake Bay, as Rochambeau had secretly urged, and attempt a rendezvous there with Washington and Rochambeau. He also thoughtfully requested his colleague, the French Admiral de Barras, in Newport to join him with siege equipment that had been brought from France, and with his own fleet. De Barras was actually senior to de Grasse, and uh, so had discretion not to join the expedition, another point of possible breakdown or failure, but de Barras grasped the opportunity as well and mobilized his fleet with men and siege cannon that would be invaluable to breaking the defenses of Yorktown, as we'll see. De Grasse sailed with 28 ships of the line and 3,200 additional French troops from Haiti and arrived at the mouth of the Chesapeake on August, 30, on August 30th, a two-week voyage. On August 14th, de Grasse's reply was received at White Plains, New York. Washington realized that de Grasse's decision to rendezvous in the Chesapeake left him with no real choice but to embark on a southern campaign in his native Virginia. He wrote later, quote, I was obliged to give up all idea of attacking New York, and instead thereof, to remove the French troops and a detachment from the American army to Head of Elk, to be transported to Virginia for the purpose of cooperating with de Grasse against the troops in that state. So as you can see, it was de Grasse and Rochambeau who actually drove the decision to attack Cornwallis in Virginia. But once the die was cast, Washington set about the task without delay. The Franco-American forces decamped from White Plains around August 14th to seize the opportunity that de Grasse had offered. There are so many interesting personalities in this campaign, only some of whom I can do justice to in our story. But perhaps here is as good a time as any to consider for a moment the generalship of George Washington, as we would any other general in any other campaign we've covered in our series. It's difficult, especially for an American like myself, to try to objectively examine this man as a general, this man who looms so large in the history of our country. And in a short story like this, his complex character cannot possibly be discussed in any detail that would do him justice. But let's consider just for a moment his qualities as a general. And let's ask here, was George Washington a good general? And my answer would have to be a definite yes. Washington was an experienced commander to begin with at this stage of his career. His early military career, like so many of the generals and admirals in our story, began in the Seven Years' War. His career did not start gloriously with a detachment under his command having been ambushed by the French and Indians at Fort Necessity in Pennsylvania and forced to surrender the fort. He was again defeated at Fort Duquesne, which is now Pittsburgh, in 1755 while under the command of General Edward Braddock, who was mortally wounded in the Battle of the Wilderness. 
On Braddock's death, Washington coolly assumed command and successfully retreated with the remaining British and colonial forces. Retreat was actually a Washington specialty, which would hardly seem to be the mark of a great general, and yet it was. As a matter of fact, an orderly retreat after a military defeat in battle was then, as it is now, one of the most difficult military maneuvers to accomplish. His skill at escaping was seen again on Long Island and again after the Battle of Trenton, an audacious attack made in the dead of winter with only 2,400 men, in which he managed to defeat and capture about a 1,000 Hessians in British service. Washington was an excellent judge of men and picked great commanders in his own army, Greene, Knox, Lincoln, and Lafayette, for example. As one writer pointed out, even Benedict Arnold was a great choice before he betrayed the revolutionaries and changed sides, fighting effectively for the British. That's another mark of a great general, in my opinion. As a tactician, a battlefield general, he made his mistakes, but he invariably learned from them. He was persistent and determined. Who but Washington could have endured and led a starving, frozen army camped at Valley Forge to survive and fight again another day? Although born into a wealthy Virginia family, he was not a vain man who fought for personal glory, but instead for a cause in which he believed. As a strategist, he was brutally realistic and great. He understood all along that with a smaller and more poorly armed force, it was important above all to survive, to stay in the field, and that the destruction of his army could not be risked in any battle, or the cause would probably have been lost. He realized in the early stages of the war that a direct-on, frontal, stand-up battle with the British was probably suicide with the forces that he had under his command. He also utilized espionage and intelligence more fully than any other general during the war, while at the same time was a master of disinformation and deception, qualities I'm sure the great Sun Tzu would have admired. The Yorktown campaign would be Washington's last and most brilliant of his long career. In it, he brought to bear a quarter century of experience, cunning, and leadership that would prove decisive. One of the first signs of Washington's genius was his deception with Clinton, slipping away from New York, bypassing Clinton's superior army, and arriving at the point of attack, the Schwerpunkt, as German strategists of the 19th and 20th centuries would call it, the crucial point of attack, before Clinton or Cornwallis realized what was happening. Too late.
Washington responded to de Grasse on August 17th, asking that he send frigates and transport ships to the Elk River at the head of the Chesapeake Bay to meet his army and speed their movement southward to Virginia. He then left 2,500 troops at West Point under General William Heath with the rest of his army and all of Rochambeau's crossing the Hudson River and marching down into New Jersey. DeBarras and his fleet would transport siege guns and ammunition by sea to Virginia. Finally, the Franco-American maneuver around New York was accompanied by disinformation by Washington designed to deceive Clinton that New York was still the objective of the army Clinton believed for some time was still north of him. He succeeded as late as early September. In a letter to Lord George Germain, the British Secretary of State for the Colonies in London and basically the minister in charge of the war uh, there, Clinton reported that Washington, quote, had crossed the Hudson River and by the position he took seemed to threaten Staten Island, unquote. Not until September 7th did Clinton learn that Washington and Rochambeau had crossed the Delaware River south of Philadelphia and became convinced that Virginia and Cornwallis was their destination. By then, a great number of Washington and Rochambeau's troops had boarded transport ships supplied by de Grasse and were heading down the Chesapeake to join Lafayette in Virginia. The remainder continued to Baltimore, where more ships had been assembled and the remainder of the army boarded. It must be remembered that in those days, American terrain was quite primitive by European standards. The fastest way to travel, especially for large numbers of men, was by water and not by land. Once Washington was sure of de Grasse's presence in the Chesapeake, he became obsessed with speed to close the trap on Cornwallis, whom he had learned was now encamped at Yorktown. It was essential now to concentrate the disparate units of the army, Lafayette, Green, von Steuben, and his own, to close the land door and complete the envelopment of Cornwallis's army to enable him to win not just an ordinary victory, where Cornwallis could retreat in good order to fight another day, the kind of encounter with which Washington was all too familiar, but a decisive, strategic, complete victory of annihilation from which there would be no escape. But now back to the French and their fleet. Rodney's decision-making in the West Indies didn't improve as the summer of 1781 wore on. When he learned uh, that uh, of de Grasse's arrival and departure from Haiti, he couldn't decide where he had gone, north to the mainland or the colonies on the one hand, or back to Europe. Rodney decided to hedge his bets, sending Hood with 14 ships of the line up the Atlantic coast, while he and the rest of the British fleet sailed back to Europe in pursuit, or so he thought, of the French fleet that wasn't. And here you can see again and imagine the agonizing guesswork that was so often the fate of an army and navy commander of that day. The British actually had superior numbers, 
in the Americas, a large fleet in New York and a second one in the West Indies. Had Rodney guessed right and brought his fleet north to the Chesapeake in combination with the British fleet under Sir Thomas Graves in New York, the the British would have had a a significant advantage over de Grasse and might have defeated or at least driven him off. As it was, de Grasse would only face a fleet comparable in size to his own when the Battle of the Capes was fought. It was a cat-and-mouse game with a lot of guesswork and delayed consequences. De Grasse cleverly decided to approach the theater of operations in Virginia by navigating away and outside the normal sea lanes of travel to avoid being detected by a passing vessel who might report his whereabouts to the British. In this he succeeded, but with the unexpected bonus of actually arriving after Admiral Hood, who appeared in the bay on August the 25th. Hood found no French fleet and guessed that if de Grasse had sailed for the colonies, he was by now in Newport, in the process of joining with de Barris's fleet there. Accordingly, he decided to continue his progress up to New York to unite with Graves and support his position there. But, of course, he was wrong. De Grasse was not ahead of Hood, but behind him, arriving five days later on August the 30th, a fact that did not become known to Graves or Hood for many precious days. What they did learn after Hood's arrival in New York was that Admiral Dabaras had left Newport heading south on August 27th. Once again, this led to a process of logic and prediction that marked 18th century warfare, guessing the intentions and directions of your opponent. Graves concluded, a week or more before Clinton did, that the Chesapeake Bay area was probably where the French were concentrating, although at that time neither he nor Clinton were aware of the movement of the American and French armies. Nonetheless, Graves guessed correctly, and together with Hood, Graves gathered together his available warships and headed south on August the 31st, arriving at the mouth of the bay on September 5th. In the meantime, Washington and Rochambeau had marched from White Plains to Princeton, Trenton, and Philadelphia, the colonial capital, where the Continental and French armies marched past Congress in the first days of September. After leaving Philadelphia later that day, Washington received news confirming de Grasse's arrival at Chesapeake Bay. His usual stoic reserve deserted Washington for once. Eyewitnesses reported that he rode ahead to Rochambeau's headquarters in Chester, and after dismounting his horse, ran to greet Rochambeau, hat in one hand and handkerchief in the other, shouting, He's here! He's arrived! over and over again, as he embraced Rochambeau. Now a word about geography, because as we always do, it's so important to the outcome of almost any military battle. Uh, and, and this is a combined uh, naval and land battle when, when we get done. The coast of Maryland and Virginia are comprised by what are essentially a series of peninsulas formed by various tributary waters to the vast Chesapeake Bay. The bay runs largely north and south with the northernmost reaches 
where the states of Maryland, Delaware, and Pennsylvania converge. It is very large, some 4,500 square miles, and runs about 200 miles from the Susquehanna River in the north to the entrance to the Atlantic Ocean at its southern end. The eastern side is bounded by what is often known as the Delmarva Peninsula. Uh, And at the very tip end of that peninsula uh, is the Cape that the battle we're going to describe uh, is known for, the Battle of the Capes, because it takes place around there. Um, In fact, the battle takes place The Battle of Yorktown takes place on one of these peninsulas that juts out into the bay, and it's bounded on the north by the York River, hence the name Yorktown, and on the south by the James River. Uh, At the tip of this peninsula is Yorktown, which is upstream from the mouth of the York River that flows into the Chesapeake. And the York River at this point is quite wide, enough to allow uh, men of war a fleet of warships, to sail into an anchor in the river or the bay within sight of Yorktown. Today, a long bridge spans the mouth of the Chesapeake, U.S. Highway 13, connecting the southern shore of the mouth of the Chesapeake near Norfolk to the tip of what is of the Delmarva Peninsula that forms the eastern and northern side of the bay, as I mentioned. It's only a few miles from Yorktown. Any country wanting to control the entire Chesapeake Bay would and could position a fleet of warships at this narrow channel and nothing could go in or out of the bay without the permission of that occupying power. Cornwallis and Clinton both knew this. That's why Cornwallis was building not just a fortified military base but a naval base as well at Yorktown. So did de Grasse, whose fleet of warships settled in at the mouth of the bay on August the 30th with his fleet of 28 warships, which was soon joined by, uh, which was to be joined by uh, de Barras' fleet in due course. De Grasse had offloaded his 3,200 soldiers uh, he had brought from the Caribbean Uh, upon his arrival. They were going to join up with Rochambeau's forces when they arrived, which would not occur for another several weeks. Um, At first, the only American force in the area was uh, Lafayette's army encamped at Malvern Hill, well inland up this very same peninsula near Richmond, um, a position Lafayette fortified with artillery. Lafayette's forces were not strong enough to stop a real attack by Cornwallis's army in Yorktown, but until and unless the British sallied forth in numbers, Lafayette's presence blocked communications and supplies down the peninsula by land. De Grasse's arrival blocked access by sea, at least so long as the French fleet held their position. A word about colonial Virginia. In 1780, A year before this battle, Richmond had become the capital of the state. Williamsburg, near Yorktown, had been the capital until that time. The main, and really only, highway that linked the major cities on the eastern coast of America was known in those days as either the Boston Post Road, for the part that linked New York and Boston, the King's Highway, for the part that linked New York 
Philadelphia, and Baltimore, and the Great Coast Road for that part that went south from Alexandria. You had to take a ferry across the Potomac between what is today Washington, D.C. to Alexandria, Virginia. Washington did not exist in 1781, and the road south of Alexandria, the Great Coast Highway, declined in quality as it went south. But still, it was the greatest highway of colonial America. This highway is now, by the way, U.S. Highway 1. It was this highway upon which Washington and Rochambeau marched from New York to Maryland and would have been the natural line of march, communications, and supply by land between Clinton in New York and Cornwallis in Yorktown. Thus, even though the Franco-American army would not arrive until mid-September, its mere presence on this road blocked British communications, or easy British communications in any event, by land between the two major British armies. So as we proceed, you can see more and more, I hope, how vital the presence of the French fleet was to the success of the whole campaign. It was as important as the land forces that would besiege Yorktown and eventually force the capitulation of Cornwallis on October 19, 1781. But that is yet to come. The arrival of de Grasse combined with the presence of Lafayette and additional French soldiers being debar- disembarked by de Grasse, Cornwallis and his officers still did not fully appreciate their predicament, still, un- still unaware of the impending arrival of Washington and Rochambeau, which was still weeks away. They were trapped at the end of the peninsula at Yorktown, at least for the moment, but even so, they were confident they could brush aside Lafayette's and de Grasse's land forces if they wanted. Not all of Cornwallis's officers were so confident. Bannister Tarleton, his great cavalry commander, was uneasy and urged Cornwallis to break out, attacking Lafayette's relatively weak force at Malvern Hill. But Cornwallis decided to protect his base and assumed that in due course, if needed, the Royal Navy would arrive to break the blockade and strong reinforcements would be sent from New York by Clinton. By the way, this officer, Bannister Tarleton, is the very officer who was so vividly depicted in the Mel Gibson movie, The Patriot. In that movie, for those of you who have seen it, the coolly brutal Colonel William Tavington, played by Jason Isaacs, is seen as a murdering British officer who, somewhat like Bannister Charlton in real life, believed that American colonists who aided the rebel cause were themselves traitors or spies who deserved death, a believer sort of in the total war concept that included terrorizing civilians into submission. 
a further interesting fact about him is that after the surrender at Yorktown, Washington and Rochambeau actually entertained the British generals and officers at a gala dinner, which was not that unusual um, in, in that time. But Tarleton was not included due to their contempt for him and the atrocities they believed he had committed. Unlike the movie, Tarleton was not killed in battle and in fact lived to a fairly ripe old age in England, dying there at the age of 79. As I've mentioned, massacres and brutalities among the American colonists were not just by one side. In fact, Tarleton's command uh, was the British Legion, made up almost entirely of loyal American colonists, loyal to the crown. Any brutalities, which he denied he was part of um, for the rest of his life, would have been carried out by Americans under his command against other Americans. By the first week of September, Clinton had also become aware of the situation, as we noted. Washington's movement and the French blockade of the Chesapeake. Clinton put two and two together and concluded that Cornwallis would soon be facing a very strong force indeed and needed to be reinforced. The problem was how to get there, by land or by sea. Clinton correctly surmised that by the beginning of September, Washington had stolen such a march on him that uh, detaching a strong contingent from his own base at New York by land march to Virginia would take too long to arrive and, along the way, just might meet the combined might of a much superior Franco-American army that could lead to its destruction. Therefore, movement by sea seemed the logical choice, but there was de Grasse. Clinton wrote to Cornwallis on September 6th that he was aware of his situation and that reinforcements would be sent, yet he didn't say how or where they would arrive, which was therefore of little comfort to Cornwallis. The letter evidently, which must evidently have been carried on back roads and trails to Yorktown, didn't arrive until September 14th, when Washington and Rochambeau had by then appeared in the area. The Royal Navy did arrive on September 5th, however, as we noted earlier, and it's now time to discuss the Battle of the Capes. As Graves' fleet rounded the tip of the Delmarva Peninsula on September 5th at around 9.30 in the morning, the French fleet uh, was sighted. A few minutes later, the French frigate Aigrette, guarding the tip, sighted the approaching British fleet but at first mistook them for de Barras's fleet, uh, but quickly realized that they were British and counted 19 ships of the line, six frigates, and a fire ship bearing down on him at about six or seven knots. He signaled the warning uh, up the bay, which de Grasse received about an hour later, around 10.30 in the morning. It's a testament to de Grasse's temperament and resourcefulness that he didn't panic at this point, although he well could have. The wind and tide were against his fleet in the Chesapeake and behind the arriving British, giving them a great navigational advantage. Sailing ships with the wind and tide were faster and more maneuverable than those against it, which meant 
a lot when firepower and destructive salvos depended upon bringing the broadsides of these immense warships to bear, while maneuvering out of range or at least minimizing the number of enemy cannon opposing you that could blast you in return. Further disadvantaging de Grasse was the fact that many of his men were ashore, offloading ammunition and supplies or supervising him. De Grasse calculated it would be about four hours before the bulk of the British fleet would be within Hampton Roads, and he knew that in the meantime the tide at least would turn and would run with him. He mobilized as much of his crews as quickly as he and officers as quickly as he could. Uh, and because of the length of time it took to lift heavy anchors by hand in those times, you may have seen them in movies, they have this huge wheel that, you know, they would have to click, 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 turn to lift these heavy anchors. De Grasse simply decided to cut his anchor lines to save time. As it was, he had to leave behind some 90 officers and 1,900 men, as his flagship, the 104-gun Ville de Paris, led the way out of the channel. The wind was still against his fleet, though, and he signaled that instead of forming up in a predetermined line of battle, his ships were to fall in behind him in whatever order they could. The first and fastest to arrive would be the first in line uh, behind him, and so forth. Still, his fleet was struggling, and not fully out of the bay at one o'clock in the afternoon when Admiral Hood in the lead was just about to engage him. But here, de Grasse got lucky. Graves, adhering to the British Admiralty's antiquated rule book on fighting instructions, called off Hood's contingent. Instead of signaling close action, which would have given Hood the go-ahead to attack, Graves signaled instead line ahead, meaning that Hood was to fall into a single-line formation so that the British fleet would come alongside a similar parallel line of French ships to engage. Hood followed orders, turning around 180 degrees, and to de Grasse's astonished delight, headed back out to sea over the next hour and a half. Sort of like, you know, the etiquette of an 18th century duel, uh, rather than um, the kind of uh, free-for-all that uh, Nelson would engage in at the Nile, where um, even though he first sighted the French fleet late in the day, uh, he signaled his fleet to press right on and into uh, the bay and attack immediately. Um, That was another day and another admiral, not the not a Graves. In any event, as de Grasse's numerically superior fleet continued to lumber out to sea, another advantage came to him thanks to Graves' mistake. The fastest British ships, which were under hood, copper-bottomed ships, as a matter of fact, uh, in this maneuver, now suddenly became the rear of the fleet, while the slowest and most vulnerable ships including three 74-gun ships under Admiral Drake, which had been leaking badly when they uh, had left New York five days earlier, were now in the lead. Graves continued to follow the fighting instructions to the letter and continued to fritter away every advantage he had started with by signaling his ships to wait until the French center had come abreast of his own. De Grasse obliged him, 
、uh, but with a difference. His fastest and strongest ships were in the lead, or the van, as it was called, and would go up against Graves' slowest and weakest ships. It also allowed him to bring his entire fleet out of the harbor, five more ships than Graves' fleet. With an advantage of 1,794 French cannon to 1,410 British. It wasn't until about 3.45 in the afternoon when Graves signaled to close with the enemy, over six hours having elapsed. At 4.15, Drake's slow leaking hulks had turned and were approaching the French, opening fire, but more or less at a 90 degree angle. De Grasse's van spat fire and broadside after broadside into them until around nightfall at 6 30 p.m., when Graves ordered his ships to disengage. Graves' fleet had suffered 336 casualties. The 74s, as they were called, 74 gun, Shrewsbury, Vax, and Terrible were almost unsaleable. The terrible would be burned at sea a few days later. The Montague, a 74, almost lost all her mass. The Intrepid, struck by 65 cannonballs in the first volley, had to leave the fleet with a broken rudder. On the French side, the Diadème and the Pluto, both 74s, and the Réfléchi and the Caton, both 64s, were in bad shape. French casualties numbered 240 sailors. But the battle was not over, or was it? The fleet spent the next day, September 6, making repairs and continuing to maneuver, still in plain sight of one another. De Grasse, however, kept heading east, away from the Chesapeake and the relief of Cornwallis. That night, Hood wanted Graves to turn around and return to the bay, sort of putting themselves between、uh, De Grasse and Uh, Cornwallis, but the fleets drifted further and further south on the 7th. At nightfall on the 9th, de Grasse suddenly turned and headed back north. As he approached, he saw to his、uh, delight de Barras and his fleet riding at anchor in Lynnhaven Bay near Norfolk. De Grasse, who knew that Washington and Rochambeau were on their way, knew that he had achieved his goal. With de Barra safely in the Chesapeake, Cornwallis was firmly in the trap. Pressured by an angry Hood, who'd watched Graves really botch this battle,、uh, the two admirals returned briefly to the Chesapeake on the 13th, but they too found de Barras and de Grasse both there. It was too late. The British were not prepared with 18 ships of the line to attack 36 French, and so had to return to New York on the 19th of September. Washington and Rochambeau, you will recall, had left their armies on transports going down the Chesapeake while they continued south themselves by land. Washington arrived in Virginia at his home at Mount Vernon on September 9th for the first time in six years. He and Rochambeau stayed at Mount Vernon until September 12th and then reached Williamsburg on September 14th. On September 17th, Washington and Rochambeau were brought aboard de Grasse's flag, flagship, Ville de Paris, where they dined with de Grasse and his officers. 
Uh, and it's been reported that, much to the amusement of the assembled guests, the six-foot-two-inch de Grasse repeatedly referred to the six-foot-four-inch Washington as Mon Petit Général. Over the next two weeks, Washington's masterstroke was solidified as additional American and French troops poured into Williamsburg, and French siege cannon and equipment was brought up to Yorktown's outer defenses. Yet Cornwallis had not been idle either. Concentric rings of breastworks and fortifications had been built that had to be breached before Cornwallis would be defeated, and all the while he, uh, he continued to hope that Clinton would be able to send relief. Sieges were something of a science that had been developed over the past century and a half in Europe, and the French were masters of the science. Arrayed around the concentric rings of defenses, the Franco-American army settled in, and the process began. Washington was now in command of a much superior land force for once, 7,800 Frenchmen, 3,000 militia, and 8,000 continental regulars against Cornwallis's force of about 7,200 men. On September the 28th, Washington led the army from Williamsburg to Yorkstown, where they entrenched around the British fortifications. Shooting began on on the 29th, and almost immediately Cornwallis pulled back from his outer defenses to tighten his lines immediately adjacent to the town center. The French and Americans occupied these outer trenches and breastworks, and for the next week or so, fighting and raiding flickered back and forth, but the key was that the French and Americans were building firing platforms for heavy siege cannon as they, con- as they continued to dig trenches and throw up breastworks of logs and mud ever closer to the British center. This was the slow business of siege warfare. The French, British, and Americans took casualties, but there was nothing the inferior British forces could do but watch as their doom approached. On October the 9th, the guns were in place and a barrage began that pounded British defenses and set fire to some of the buildings in Yorktown. Washington ordered that the cannon fire day and night so the British could not repair their fortifications during any pause. It was demoralizing. Desertions from the British side began to trickle into the Franco-American lines. On the night of October 11th, Washington ordered that the Americans dig a second parallel, and by the 14th, trenches were within 150 yards of a couple of redoubts known as numbers 9 and 10 that um, Cornwallis had, had constructed. Washington ordered that all guns within range begin blasting these redoubts to weaken them for the assault that would come that evening, a moonless night that would give the attackers the element of surprise. To add to it, Washington ordered that soldiers should not load their muskets until they reached the fortifications. The advance would be made with cold steel. Redoubt 10 was near the river and held 70 men, while Redoubt 9 was a quarter of a mile inland and was held by 120 British and Germans. These redoubts were heavily fortified with rows of you know, sharpened stakes or abatis surrounding them, along with muddy ditches that surrounded them. Washington devised a plan in which the French would launch a diversionary attack on the uh, Fusiliers Redoubt, and then a half hour later the French would assault Redoubt number 9 and the Americans would re- uh, assault Redoubt number 10. The American assault was led by none other than Alexander Hamilton. At 6.30 
In the evening, gunfire announced the diversionary attack by the French. And um, at other places in the line, movements were made as if the, uh, the Americans and the French were preparing for an out-and-out assault on Yorktown itself, which caused some of the British to panic. With bayonets fixed, the Americans uh, assaulted Redoubt Number 10, uh, which was taken um, shortly thereafter, uh, as was the French assault on Number 9. Uh, with the capture of redoubts 9 and 10, Washington was now able to move uh, his artillery uh, even closer and begin to shell the town from three directions, um, with the Allies moving even more artillery into the redoubts. On October 15th, Cornwallis turned all his guns on the nearest Allied position and ordered a storming party of 350 British troops under the command of Robert Abercrombie to attack the Allied lines and spike the American and French cannon. You can see how game Cornwallis was right to the end. The Allies were sleeping and unprepared, and the British party did succeed in spiking several cannon, uh, but then the French counterattacked and drove them out. On the morning of the 16th, more Allied guns were in line and the fire intensified. In desperation, Cornwallis attempted to evacuate his troops across the York River to Gloucester Point, but um, that uh, foundered when uh, a wave of boats made it across, but hit a squall um, returning, uh, making the evacuation impossible. The fire on Yorktown from the Allies became heavier and heavier as new artillery pieces joined the line. And in the evening of the 16th, Cornwallis talked with his officers and all agreed that their situation was hopeless. On the morning of the 17th, a drummer appeared, followed by an officer waving a white handkerchief. The bombardment ceased, and the uh, officer was taken to the American lines. To make sure that nothing fell apart between the French and the Americans at the last minute, Washington made sure that the French were participating in and given an equal share uh, in every step of the surrender process. The Articles of Capitulation were signed on October 19th. Uh, and uh, interestingly, the British had asked for the traditional, what was known as the honors of war, uh, which would have allowed them to march out with dignity, flags waving, muskets shouldered, and playing uh, an American tune as a tribute to the victors. But the British, when they had taken Charleston early in the war, had refused uh, the Americans under General Lincoln the same privilege. So Washington denied their request. As a result, the British and Hessian troops marched with flags furled, muskets reversed in shame, and playing a British tune called The World Turned Upside Down. It was a popular British marching tune of the time. Uh, in all, 8,000 troops, 214 artillery pieces, thousands of muskets, 24 transport ships, wagons, and horses were captured. In his book, The Men Who Lost America, British Leadership, The American Revolution, and the Fate of the Empire, by Andrew Jackson O'Shaughnessy, uh, we're given an account of how the news 
uh, of the defeat at Yorktown was received in London by the British government. And I'm going to quote from his book, since I, I think it's just a very interesting and amusing um, narrative um, that will give you an idea of the psychological shock that this uh, imparted to the British government. And so I quote, At noon on Sunday, November 25th, 1781, so about a month has passed now when, you know, since the actual surrender, Lord Germain was at his private residence next to Carlton House in Pall Mall in London when he received official confirmation of the news that he had been dreading. Saying nothing to a guest, he immediately ordered his carriage to be driven to the residence of one of the other Secretaries of State, Lord Stormont, in Portland Place. After imparting the, quote, disastrous information of the surrender of Lord Cornwallis, Germain and Stormont took another carriage to see the Lord Chancellor, Lord Thurlow, in Great Ormond Street. After a short conference, they collectively decided to summon their nerve and go in person to the Prime Minister, Lord North. Between one and two o'clock in the afternoon, the three cabinet ministers arrived at the official residence of the Prime Minister in Downing Street. Although he had long despaired of the war and had many times attempted to resign, Lord North reacted to the news, as Germaine described, quote, as he would have taken a bullet in his breast, unquote. Pacing up and down uh, his rooms for several minutes, North suddenly opened his arms, exclaiming wildly, quote, Oh God, it's all over, unquote. North repeated the words many times in a state of consternation and distress. After North had calmed down, the ministers discussed whether to postpone the state opening of Parliament, which was due to occur in less than 48 hours, with many members having already arrived in the capital and others on their way. They decided against a change. They then spent several hours rewriting the king's speech, which was to be delivered from the throne in the House of Lords. The speech had originally predicted victory, but was altered to make a token reference to the events at Yorktown. Germain then sent word of the news of the, quote, melancholy termination of Lord Cornwallis's expedition, unquote, to His Majesty King George III, who was at Kew Palace on the outskirts of London. Germain then returned to his office in Whitehall, where he found additional confirmation of Cornwallis's defeat at Yorktown in a French account. By the way, the king sent a note to Germain, which he received uh, hours later, saying that, in so many words, the news um, meant nothing to him and would make this, not the slightest difference in the king's resolve to continue the war. Of course, as we all know, he was eventually overruled by his cabinet and had to accept um, peace. In fact, the rest, as they say, is history. To me, this campaign is one of the most marvelously delicate, intricate, and near-perfect combinations of multiple players and circumstances that could be imagined in a time without telephones, aerial observation, let alone satellites. Even the means and tools by which Eisenhower planned the invasion of Normandy on D-Day 
we're all missing here. In all, from the Franco-American side, there were, there was Washington, Rochambeau, Lafayette, de Grasse, and de Barras, all converging at just the right place, at just the right time. As for the British, there was Hood, Rodney, Graves, Clinton, and Cornwallis, whose movements and mistakes simply didn't mesh, resulting in a battle that gave birth to the American Republic and bend the arc of history.